This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Matt, that's Eric, that's Caleb, and the ghost in the fifth chair, as always, Joby Martin. So to to launch in here, I just want to dig right into the text of Matthew 2. Caleb, can you actually read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 6? Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Six also. Yes, sir. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for far or far for from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So a lot of things here at the beginning. So in verse one they talk about Bethlehem of Judea. That's about six miles south of Jerusalem, just for you know, you geography folks out there. Uh there's a mention almost immediately of Herod the king. So I think enough is known about Herod. Well, I don't want to assume enough is known about Herod, but Herod was a rough dude. Um, This is a guy that was not shy about killing people that he thought was going to cross him. Uh, He killed three of his sons. He killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law and he killed, you know, numbers of other people. So he features prominently in Matthew 2. When it talks about how the Magi or the wise men saw, uh, for we saw his star when it rose, that goes back to Numbers 24, 17. And then at the end there, uh, they're quoting the prophet Micah 5, 2, talking about a ruler that was going to shepherd the, the people of Israel. So there's a lot to talk about there. So you guys hop in wherever you'd like. But if I'm gonna, you know, camp on Herod for a minute, I think it's the word ruler that came from the prophets that is uh, really important here. But perhaps the other thing to talk about here is because of nativity scenes, I think we get the birth of Jesus story as it pertains to the wise men very, very wrong. This is all happening up to two years. There's up to two years difference between chapter one and chapter two here. Okay. Um, And uh, the wise men, and I think this is important as well, the wise men likely traveled uh, with a large number of guards and a large number of attendants, and some estimate and assume that these wise men came from Babylon. Now, Babylon, where they would have been in Babylon, is about 800 miles away from Bethlehem. And so we're talking, if they go 20-something miles a day, it's going to take them 40 days to get from Babylon. But again, the story and, and all the music is like, oh, it's like the wise men were hanging out in, in you know, the suburb of Bethlehem and just kind of moseyed their way over there following the star. But um, the, the, the reason why verse 4 is so interesting here, when Herod inquired as to what was going on, it showed that Herod and the Magi didn't really know the Old Testament prophecies. The Magi were studying the stars and all that and just reacting to it. And Herod, you know, being the ruler of these people, had no idea what the prophets had said. So I've talked for way too long here just at the jump. So you guys hop in on anything there in the, the first six verses of Matthew 2. Yeah, I mean, uh, 800 miles. I mean, they had to have been pretty committed, you know. Right. To and something I, they didn't fully understand. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because I, I, uh, in some of the research I did, I, I, 
I got the impression that they maybe they did know and that when they were asked, it wasn't like, it's almost like they had it memorized. Now I get what you're saying there, but it's just they're like, yeah, yeah. And what, what was interesting to me though, was that if they did come all that way, then why did they go to see Herod in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, so to your point, maybe that, maybe it was kind of an incomplete understanding because why did they need to stop there? But they did, you know? Um, so yeah. So some of the research I did, like they did actually know the scriptures, maybe not fully well, cause they weren't, you know, they weren't, you know, practicing Jewish people, but uh, it's interesting where God has set up his, his kingdom and where Jerusalem is. It's not the best land, not the biggest land, doesn't, doesn't yield the best crops, but where is it? It's at a crossroads for a lot of nations and a lot of nations to battle. A lot of people have to go through Israel. And so God is one that will proclaim his truth to the ends of the earth. And so people who came through Jerusalem and, and Israel, whether they were Assyrian or Babylonian or Egyptian, they were preached the word of God. And so God, God's word spread out from Israel to other places. And so the Magi who knew the stars, they knew astrology, they also would have known scripture because they were taught scripture through some cultural um, workings that, that had, had brought these truths. And, you know, you take what you like, you, you put out, you, you throw out what you don't like, you, but they knew the scripture well enough to know that there was some important historical figure that was going to be born here. And they knew that prophecy well enough to get at least in the ballpark of where it was going to be. And again, all of history bends to God's will. His truth and word was proclaimed even out from Israel to Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, like all those people knew of God's word because God's people were to be an example to the world. Yeah, it had been 400 years. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a long time. I'm trying to think, like, is there anything I've been waiting, to, waiting on since the 1600s? No, not, not that I knew of. <laughs> I mean, so it had been 400 years. So just the fact that that had been passed on and passed on, even if it was a little bit vague or, you know, whatever, um, or, or kind of rustling, I mean, it's still very impressive. Um, and then just the sheer fact, again, that they sat on a voyage and um, we're, we're bound and determined to meet the king. Back to Herod. This is an interesting thing. It's thought that Herod came from the line of Esau, who you remember from scripture is in opposition to Jacob, who is Israel. I think that's a very peculiar, but very intentional detail. Again, that God puts in there. His story is there's Esau, who is in opposition to Jacob. Jacob takes his blessings and then becomes the nation of Israel, but is opposed by his brother Esau. And so here is Herod in direct opposition to Israel and, and Israel's true and, and rightful king. That is wild and cool to think about. What do you think, like in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him? Well, what do you think I, that means? Yeah, here's what I think. I think that our nativity scenes that we have we only have three wise men on there because we, just, that's, we don't have a whole lot of room on our, on our table. So they're like, yeah, 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 we'll just make three of them. But what I read was that there, there may have been hundreds of these wise men that were coming through. And, and three wise men walking into town probably don't create much of a stir. But 300 wise men walking in, all going to see the, the king that has been born, 
uh, probably would stir the town up, especially since he's called the king of the Jews well, and a king. At, well, they were, at they were stirring the, the count of my, the commentary that I'm reading. It says um, when they got into Jerusalem saying, and the, the Hebrew or the, the, the Greek word that's used there is an active verb. Like they were actively seeking people out. Where is this person? Where is, so they were stirring up some commotion in Jerusalem that Herod undoubtedly heard about and, Who's this guy that they're going to worship not coming to give me reverence or to worship me or whatever whatever I'm wanting as as the ruler of this um nation of Israel or and like why are they coming to see this guy and not me right cuz Herod was he was likely maniacal sociopathic but had to have been just self-absorbed narcissist to where it's like you can't almost like Artaxerxes you just can't fathom that anyone would do anything to defy you and to, to be in your presence and not be just full of glee. Uh, so yeah, there's certainly a lot wrapped up there in those first. Wasn't he the, wasn't, didn't he also plan on having a whole bunch of leaders killed upon his death? Yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure that he wanted other people to <laughs> die along with him. And of course they, they didn't do that when he, when they, when he died, they were like, yeah, okay, we're probably not going to do that. <laughs> it's one of those like, yeah, sure. Sure. We will. Yeah. Well, cause you, <laughs> you got it. Herod, he's the reason the temple was rebuilt. Yeah. He's the reason why, or at least the project started while he was still alive. Right. But there were so many amazing things, things built during his time period, but it wasn't because he was like Nehemiah in that he was a great manager. It's that people were working for him under threat of death constantly. And death's a pretty awesome motivator to, to get, you know, the foundation poured and the blocks, you know, set right. Yeah. It's interesting. And we're about to find out a little bit of a, you know, link here. It's interesting. He's not unlike another ruler that, that the Israelites are under in, in that of the Pharaoh and you're building things for me under threat of death. And we're going to get there, but there's some links to, right. To and, Egypt and, and Pharaoh there. And, and the hair and Herod is a, it's like family. It's a family name, right? So there, there are multiple of them. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Cause yeah. I believe the one that we're talking about dies yep. pretty quick after Jesus is right. But born, his, right? but his son or, or his, I don't know if it's, I think it's his son that's, that's in power when, when Jesus, Jesus was, yeah. was in his ministry, right? Yeah. He was, yeah. And he was just way worse, way, yeah. way, way rougher. If you can imagine, yeah. uh, just as self-possessed. Yeah. Eric, if you could hit seven through 12. Roger. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came over uh, to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So another dream there that we see in the first two chapters of Matthew, there's a lot of dreams. And throughout Matthew 2, we're going to see more dreams. But verse 9, you know, with the star that's moving, that's a miracle. You know, it's some call it, maybe it was a supernova, maybe it was this or that. But this, this is where the time period, I think, is very important. And again, we've been kind of lulled to sleep by the nativity scenes that we have seen in our lifetime because the wise men were not at the birth of Jesus, full stop. They weren't there in the manger. And by the way, 
a manger wasn't, you know, the, the bed wasn't made of wood and hay. Like these mangers back in that day were like concrete and stone and that's where the baby would be. But that that's just kind of a side deal. But, you know, the, the wise men are commonly depicted being there amongst the animals, but they arrived like Jesus was upwards of two years old right. by the time the wise men got there. And again, th- there's so much here and I'll just throw it a bunch out there and then y'all can talk about whatever, but they were pagans, but then they had enough sense to worship a child, a toddler. Like even without, I guess, really full understanding of that. Um, then again, you have the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and you know that fulfills a lot of different Old Testament prophecies about you know significant uh, gifts that were given. Uh, you know, Psalm seventy-two ten that was significant gifts given by uh, Gentiles. Isaiah sixty-six. There were a bunch of other references as well. And then again, verse twelve, we have a dream. Uh, well, actually, I want to save a uh, commentary on verse 12. So anything on 7 through 12 that y'all want to discuss, go ahead and get after it. I immediately thought of, because you're talking about them being pagans, they obviously weren't Jewish people, but uh, my mind goes to Romans 2.15, like we all have the law of God written our, on our heart. We all know inherently you know, of some power that is not of us, is not of this world that has created this, this earth, right? And so I think, I think you're, that's, that's kind of where my head went to like, okay, like they are, they are image bearers of God because they are people. And so I think, yeah, that, that's where I went to was we all have that. I mean, it's just another searching, another example of the way that God works, right? That's amazing. <clears throat> I mean, they were basically, and I don't know what their, their like, you know, religious kind of history was or what they practiced, but they were obviously astrologers, you know, or aspiring astrologers, right? And that's what was that's what led them there and then boom like you said they just get there and worship this baby and it's like what in the world i mean what what possessed them to do that or to know that like this is what we're supposed to do when we get there right i mean you you could almost it would almost make more sense if they got there and they saw a baby and they were really disappointed yeah <laughs> you know that, that would make They're more like, sense what in the world yeah yeah so well and i and i read here you know when when herod was saying to him say report to me so that i too may come and worship him. You know, I was thinking about uh, a couple of weeks back about just kind of this idea of being wooed. You know, I'm wondering if the, if Herod brought him in like, Hey, let's, let's all gather around have some dinner, hang out, you know, let's talk, you know, and, and in the process of the, them eating and, and, and whatnot and being um, uh, catered to, you know, got to a point where Herod's like, you know, trying to, trying to get some information out of them, you know, and, and, and then you see that, and, and I think we're going to get into that in a minute, just they're, they're, were they wooed? Is that why there needed to be a dream to uh, tell them not to return? Yeah, it was just a diabolical plot uh, to do that. And when we get into verse 12, the thing I want to talk about, because we, you know, it's, it's just a quick thing. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So, just one line, but you know, that was kind of a diabolical scheme in a good way for the wise men to avoid Herod. Um, dreams guys can just be a really, it can be a really strange thing. Dreams can be very easily misunderstood. Uh, here recently I've been, you know, I'll take like some magnesium and some, uh, uh, different, you know, supplements right before bed to try to get more sleep, but I'm having these crazy vivid dreams. And I'll wake up, and I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about my dreams, and I'll wake up and be like, why, why who? What? There were a lot of people in that dream that are not connected. What is going on? 
and you know, if you're a, if you follow Carl Jung and do all that kind of stuff, maybe you'll start really digging down uh, into dreams and dreamscapes and, and different things like that. But what it made me think about is the, the undeniable way that the gospel can move by any means necessary. And what I mean by that specifically is when you have people in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, these types of countries, specifically Muslim countries, there are tons and tons and tons of stories of Jesus visiting Muslims in their dreams and revealing himself to them in their dreams. So they're not hearing the gospel from a missionary that's just going door to door in, you know, Kandahar like, you know, trying to, you know, help spread, spread the gospel and to make converts. Jesus is coming them to them in their dreams. It reminds me of Nabil Qureshi and his story. You know, he was in America when, when that was going down. But it's like Jesus revealed himself to that man, a lifelong Muslim, in his dreams. And it's like, I guess I don't really know what my question is, but it's just like, do I put not enough emphasis on dreams? Like, should I, you know, be going to see somebody to see if they can determine what my dreams mean? Do I need to become charismatic? Like, you know what I mean? It's just, it's a hard deal. God will do what God wants to do. And, and I, this is such a cliche, but putting God in a box, like I think we can think, and God doesn't work that way. But again, God will do whatever he wants to do. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was 10, I was going to youth group and our youth pastor shared the gospel after he washed all our feet. And I remember in that moment thinking, this is not the God that I thought I knew. Uh, This is a God that serves and loves and is sacrificial. Uh, I thought about God as the lightning bolt, you know, ready to just take me out. And, And so that was a big, huge shift. And so I gave my life to Christ that at that moment, but I did not, what I did not fully understand is that, that I was saved like forever upon that decision. And so I struggled with for what felt like months. It may have not been that long feeling like every single day I needed to ask Jesus back into my heart again and then again, and again. just to be careful, just to be sure. Cause I didn't know if I had done something wrong or if I, you know, whatever. And I remember distinctly we were living in Kingsville, Texas and one night I had a dream and in the dream, it was like the ultimate, like jujitsu, you know, match between Jesus and Satan. And I was in the middle of it. And at one point Jesus had this arm and same time Satan had this arm and they were pulling and yanking and pulling and yanking and fighting. And then all of a sudden I was third party looking, you know, from back here, like I was above my body watching the, the action and was just rooting for Jesus, rooting for Jesus, rooting for Jesus. And, and I don't remember hearing anything audible other than I knew in that moment that what Jesus was communicating is that I have won you and you are mine and you don't have to continue to do this. And I remember waking up in a sweat and um, remembering that dream and just how vivid it was and knowing that I did not need to ask Jesus into my heart anymore. Mm. And you were 10? I was 10. That's Wow. What a powerful story. Does anybody have one that can top that? I mean, <laughs> my goodness, just throw down the gauntlet here. I don't have any cool dream stories, except for I forget no. all of them. No. I, do, yeah, I do not. I, I typically forget but, mine as well. Hey, but Caleb was in a cult before, so. <laughs> so that's cool. that is, <laughs> Trump card. Yeah. That is a really cool story. I, I don't know. I, ju- I just thought of this as we were reading Matthew 2, 9-11 is what comes to mind. When I was studying Isaiah, 
um, I wrote this down as I was studying Isaiah 60. I did not bring that in correlation to studying Matthew. Um, but as we're sitting here, I, I think back to this. I want to read something in Isaiah 60 and just want you guys to tell me what you think this sounds like. And then we can talk about like why, why three is the number of the wise men that it's typically landed on. And I think there's a reason for that. So we're in Isaiah 60, verse, verse 2, verse 2b, basically. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you, your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of, of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. What does that sound like? That sounds a lot like the manger scene, does it not? Yeah. Yeah, but they brought myrrh. What's interesting is uh, myrrh is not um, referenced there, which has to do with uh, death. Right. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah that, that is very interesting. But like even, even in Isaiah 60, we have this scene that sets up a lot like the manger scene. I think Matthew is very specifically talking. Like That would have probably brought to mind Jewish people who are hearing this or reading this, Isaiah 60. And, and what that means to them. And, and Midian, Ephah, and, and Sheba, that is, a lot of people think that, or some people think that the wise men came out of that region. And that's why there's three, because there's three lines. There's three places mentioned there. So that's uh, why the, the three would be considered the number. Yeah. That's a, so I was, I was going to mention one thing about the, the dreams. I've got a buddy who him and his wife and his two daughters have been, three daughters maybe, um, have been, missionaries for Jesus in uh, Beirut for 15 plus years. So you mentioned Kyle, just that we, you you maybe don't put enough weight on your dreams or try and, you know, whatever it is, remember them or whatever. I think a lot of that is because of just kind of our heritage too. I mean, like their, their heritage, their religious heritage is that dreams are very important. Right. And so they actually, this is one of the ways that they pray for the, the people they're ministering to often is just that the Lord would come to them in their dreams. And it happens all the time. I mean, like they'll talk about it. Like someone, they'll wake up some morning to a knock at their door that someone's like, Hey, I had this dream last night. We need to talk about it. I mean, it happens like consistently. So I think some of it's just that it, it doesn't, it's not the primary way that the Lord's maybe going to find people in America, you know, but I mean, in, in certain places, he's going to find people through different ways. Like there's actually more weight that they put on the fact that, they, that it was a dream. It wasn't just having a conversation with some crazy person on the street from, you know, Oklahoma. Well, even going back to a conversation we had weeks ago about um, the distractions we feel. But when I was talking about people don't have a, you know, conscious, they have consciousness, but they don't have a, like, internal dialogue, right? Um, and so if from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, you've got either your phone in your hand or your screen in front of you or you're doing something or working on something, maybe Jesus is just, you know, God's trying to get a word in. And he can't do it while you're awake. Um, and I had somebody last year, like sent me a, you know, five minute long deal. Cause they had a dream with me in it and they kind of, you know, gave me some details and things like that. And whenever they sent it to me and described it to me, I was like, I don't know what any of this means. And they took it to a person, a, a pastor in their church who kind of does a lot with dream 
analysis and trying to figure out how does this comport with scripture and how does this kind of kind of go and there's been things that have happened even recently i know i'm kind of being cryptic in the way i'm describing it but there's things that have happened recently where it's like that dream's starting to make sense and it's not because i'm manifesting something it's not because i'm it's because i'm noticing things more some of these connections that have just been there for a while it's like that dream is kind of a glue that is connecting these dots a little bit better so I, you know, don't hear something we're not saying, which is like, hey, you need to just put a whole bunch of weight on, on your dreams, but dreams are not in and of themselves insignificant. Um, they, they can tell us something and teach us something, and God can try to get to us through our dreams well, as well. I, I think we can wrap that up with going back to, to chapter one, where it, what we know about Joseph is he was a devout, righteous Jew who, if he was that, was in, in the scriptures, knew the scriptures. and so. I'm not saying that the Bible says this, but Paul calls us to be like the Bereans and and test things against the scripture. I could easily see him knowing the scripture, knowing that um, all these things are prophesied through the the books of the Old Testament, the books of the prophets, the book book of the law. And then an angel says to him in a dream, this is what's happened. Okay, yeah. Like our books are, are, the Torah says that. Like, there are things that, that speak to that. So I, I can take this dream and line it up against my scriptures that I'm in daily and that I know by heart and that, I, that I've been studying since I was a child. I can line those up against scripture and say, okay, yeah, this wasn't, God didn't say something that was just out of left field that no one had ever heard of before. You could have gone to the scriptures and seen that this, this was prophesied from the beginning. And so I could very easily see Joseph going, yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's in the book I read. Right. Well, and you have to remember, like, since the very beginning, Satan has been on a mission to prevent the end of the world coming to be uh, because he knows he's going to lose. He was told that. And so from the very beginning, he was like, well, man, maybe I can pit brother against brother and, and just destroy God's family right from the outset, you know? And so you had Cain and Abel, you know, you have... The flood when, you know, I'm sure Satan was like, oh man, he's getting rid of everybody. This is amazing. And, um, and, and, and then God, you know, weaves a, a new thread through that, you know, the, the whole idea of uh, disqualification through the line of whatever and thinking, okay, I've cut, I've cut it off, you know, and, um, and now the savior can't come this way, but then he finds another way of coming around, you know, through Mary. Um, and then finally, you know, the birth, you know, wanting to kill the actual savior, of the world. So he, I mean, obviously possesses Herod and um, puts it in his mind to, to, to kill children right. in a certain area. We'll get to it. Yeah. Um, you know, and with the same intent, like I'm trying to cut off the line, trying but, to cut. But God's playing like 30D chess, yeah. not checkers. <laughs> yeah. But, and we're getting there. Let, let's go ahead and keep that going. Matt, can you read 13, 14, and 15? Sure. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by the prophet out of Egypt, I have called my son. So that's prophet Hosea and that's Hosea 11, one. And, um, the Egyptian border was about 90 miles from Bethlehem. I saw somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, that they weren't there for a long time. It could have just been weeks, like a few weeks that they were there because it's, it's reported that Herod died in 4 BC. 
which would put Jesus's birth somewhere between 6 BC and 4 BC. So that that's essentially what we're looking at. Uh, let's go ahead and go on to 16 through 18. Caleb, if you can get that one. <clears throat> then when, Her- when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, who were two years old or younger, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. So that's Jeremiah 31, 15. So a lot here. Obviously, just unfathomable brutality and evil here. Uh, I remember being confused by this scripture, like, because again, I, I've, I got the timeline wrong for, for most of my life, whereas like, hey, you know, he's looking for a newborn baby. Why is he killing two-year-olds? Like, that's just needless. The whole thing is needless bloodshed, but it's like extra needless. But no, Jesus was somewhere between, you know, one day and two years old. So that's basically why this happened. Uh, the estimates are that uh, between 10 and 30 boys were killed uh, in this community. Um, I, I have another thought. I'll, I'll leave that for a second. But just imagine wherever you live for the local magistrate to give the death penalty to every child in that age range of which I have one and just like, I mean, can a community recover from that? Because I mean, there are, there are school shootings that will basically turn towns into ghost towns. Um, you know what we saw in Uvalde, like that, that town has suffered immeasurably and that's generational pain that, I mean, you just can't to a degree, you can't get over what some of these people dealt with considering all the, the things that went into what happened uh, there in that town. But I mean, I just, I think about that because again, it's just a few lines, but we're talking about people that will now be mourning for the rest of their lives in a time period where infant mortality was high and, you know, people lost their children, but they lost their children to illness or disease that they couldn't treat or something like that. Not murder, like by, you know, the goons of a local magistrate. I mean, this is a gangland killing that that we're seeing. It's just I mean, for whatever reason, well, it's not for whatever reasons, because I have two young boys now. Like, I was just struck by the brutality of this passage. It is very striking, but it's also the Old Testament speaking to the dress. It's a dress rehearsal for the New Testament. And and obviously, this this is a direct link to Pharaoh killing the firstborn of the Israelites and wanting to wipe out a generation of people. And, And it's... So crazy to think, like even even going back to to Egypt, and I'd said God plays thirty D chess, not checkers. He had literally told his people, "Do not ever go back to Egypt." And then they tried to go back, and Isaiah he chastises them. I told you not to go back to Egypt. I brought you out. I said, "Do not go back." And so, if 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 Satan knows the scriptures, he he undoubtedly knows that. So, where would he think not to look? Egypt. God told him not to go back. Where does God send Christ? to Egypt. Like there's this like kind of gamesmanship that you can see here. Like, man, you like, you know, the scripture, but you don't know the plan and you, you have already lost. And, and there's just so many, there's, it's all linked together. And it's such a cool story to see. Obviously on this side, we can see it playing out, but man, God is so cool. The way he weaves things to his glory. Yeah. And even just, I mean, who would have thought, and just, just to fulfill the three prophecies of Jesus being from Bethlehem, being born in Bethlehem, 
but also being from Egypt, and then as we'll see, being from Galilee. You know, it's like, wait, what? How how is he all of those things? You know, yeah. and yet God, like you said, just kind of yeah, he's really, it he's out. Literally replaying kind of the journey of the Israelite people. Like you went to Egypt. Now, okay, I'm calling you back out, and here we go. Let's do it. Well, in the Reformation Study Bible, said that Jesus, like Moses, was saved as a baby and would go on to rescue God's chosen people. Yeah, and that's, I mean, yeah, the the corollaries are, are so so drastic that that they're almost impossible to ignore. Yeah. Now, there's something I want to talk about here, which, again, we're acknowledging that God could have done it another way or whatever. But just think, what if Herod had killed Jesus? which I, I know it even sounds heretical saying it like that because Jesus was the one foretold. And, you know, as we broke down it with the genealogy from Matthew one, like it was 14 generations plus leading up to, to this moment. But let's just use a parallel universe example that let's say Herod had succeeded in what he wanted to do. He literally set out to kill the foretold Messiah. Like, I'm trying to put myself, and it's kind of easy for me to put myself in different people's shoes, like even people that murder people or people that do these crazy heinous things. It's like, I can kind of get myself there, but that, for a guy to be a leader of a certain people group, obviously he didn't believe it. Like he didn't believe, you know, the prophets, he didn't believe any of these writings, but his, his goal was to set out to kill the Messiah. Like what, what do you even call that? Like, I just like all the words I can come up with don't even like really give it justice. Call what? Like, what do you call that decision? Like, it's not like it's evil, but it's more than evil. It's satanic, satanic, but it's almost more than that. Like, I I think that's I think that is Satan at work. I think that is is Satan trying to snuff out uh, the savior of the world. And I, I imagine that Herod probably thought he accomplished his goal. He killed a bunch of kids, and Jesus wasn't there. And to his knowledge, he probably, yep, we did it. Okay. Well, and we know that uh, from Scripture that there are, there are demons that are assigned to different areas around the world. You know, so um, it would make sense that there was a demon that was assigned to Herod. And um, when the time came, that demon basically had a powerful influence over the decisions he was making. You know, well, Satan I, loves the sacrifice of children, too. For sure. I mean, just to think about modern day with, with abortion, because what was Herod seeking to do? Well, if he could, he would have loved to have killed Mary while she was still pregnant, right? Which would have been a double murder, you know, murder and an abortion uh, kind of a thing. Isn't that interesting? Like the, the, all these dreams, you know, it, it just makes me wonder, you know, th- that was the divine intervention in that moment to save Joseph from making a bad, ultimately making a bad decision. I know he's a righteous man, but like, you know, intervening in these moments to basically be like, listen, don't do this, do this. But even like just, just this being God's story playing out and showing God's power. It's like Herod's entire life was satanic, right? I mean that whatever that demon was that had control over that, I mean, that had existed way before Jesus came on the scene, you know, but still to put Jesus in Bethlehem right there with Herod in the neighborhood, you know, it's like, this is just another way to show God's sovereignty. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, it's kind of a, um, just another way to show like, look, like, you know, you're not, Satan's not in control of this period. Yeah, absolutely. Caleb, uh, go ahead and close Matthew two out. Let's talk about 19 through 23. <clears throat> but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, 
Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and settled in a city called Nazareth. This happened so that what was spoken through the prophets would be fulfilled. He would be called a Nazarene. Two more dreams uh, right in that section. What are you laughing for? Uh, uh, All of history bends to God's will. And like, it is just so cool to see that play out. Like, I just can't help but chuckle because we serve a God that just, he's going to do what he wants. And again, we're talking about a large chunk of time here. Like this was not, you know, kind of, we can read it in 30 seconds, but it took, you know, months, years, potentially for a lot of these things to go down. Two more dreams come through. And then this kind of goes back to a discussion that I brought up when we were talking in um, Matthew 1, which is there was this north-south divide in the kingdom where, uh, you know, Galilee was in the north. Uh, The people from the south, Jerusalem, they did not have high opinions of the northerners. Now, at the end there, where it's talking about Nazareth and how you would be called the Nazarene, there is not a direct Old Testament connection to, and he would be called a Nazarene. But it just points to the revelation that Jesus would be despised, which is talked about throughout the Old Testament. Because people, Nazareth was a despised city during that time, and so were its inhabitants. Like, that's why you see, you know, later on in Jesus' life, like, you know what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And I tried to think of a modern corollary, and I couldn't really think of one as like, you know, as Americans, because these were all people that were, you know, in Israel, right? But as Americans, there's not like a city where the city is despicable and everyone in it is despicable. There may be cities we don't like, cities where we wouldn't send our kids to public school, but you're not going to say like, oh my gosh, everyone in San Francisco is just despicable. Well, well, no, like there are Bible-believing Christians that have ministries there that are trying to save people from their you know, sinful choices and, and depravity. But um, I, it's just, again, it's very interesting to see that you know, Jesus didn't come in on his throne already. He came, and we see from Scripture that he wasn't a especially attractive young man. There's nothing attractive about him, and he came from probably the worst city for a Messiah to come from during this time period. It's just fairly incredible. Yeah, he, he totally flipped the script, right? Because everybody thought, oh, well, when he comes, he's going to come with power and a sword. He's going to overthrow the Romans, and everything's going to be great. And uh, that's... That's not exactly how that went down, you know? So as we'll see later on, it becomes very confusing, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah, I think you you think of David and that Jesus comes from the line of David. You think of a king who conquers and, yeah, I'm ready for this guy to ride in with his army and I'm ready to, let's, yeah, come come kill the Romans for us. Come, come, come deliver us from this oppressive government and we're, we're ready. Oh, wait. That guy's from Nazareth? That can't be the that can't be the son of David. It can't be. Cause it can't be. <laughs> it does not fit our narrative. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And you just have to think again, you have to try to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. That, you know, they know a little bit about Jesus' story now, but then we skip ahead to when Jesus is in his thirties and they know the Old Testament. It's written on their heart because they memorized it, right? But then they just, they missed it somehow. And, you know, you talk to modern day Jews about Isaiah 53 and it's like, what 
what else would Isaiah 53 need to say for you to believe that Jesus was the one that checked all the boxes? And then you learn that in Jewish midrashes and uh, different Jewish schools, they don't even teach the 53rd yeah. chapter of Isaiah. That, yeah, they don't even teach that. That's the, that's the uh, Pierce for our transgressions. Is that the, by his, wait, wh- which one is that? My yeah, I, th- I think, Browning, are you pulling it up? Nope, I was pulling something else up. Oh, sorry. dang it. I'm, I'm All just, right. Well, sorry, let's sorry, just go there. Sorry, Joby, if I we'll, just mess that up. We'll do it live. Sorry, Joby. <laughs> um, like I'm not even close, probably. <laughs> I'm the one that brought it up and I didn't even have it up and I don't have a normal Bible in front of me. I just have the, oh. the one here, but yeah, you, you got it. Isaiah 53, Matt. No, I didn't. I didn't okay. I'm, were, I'm over two on you people. Were, you were on the, well, you, I was Bible. going to Look, it. Right, I, it's I a got race. a laptop. It's a race. Come on. All right. I'm racing y'all using the internet. I'm here. All right. What is uh, you're a liar. You're a liar. What is it? 53 what? 53. Oh yeah. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, I was right. I was here. No, no, go. It's 53, five. Yeah. Go ahead. You can read it. Y'all can read one word at a time. You can just go back and forth if you want to. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of, yeah. But, uh, I mean, when you look at that, like, because you would think, like, how could they miss it? But it's like they're purposefully ignorant now because they don't want their, their, you know, young Jewish kids to be reading about the 53rd Psalm. And it's like, I don't think it's just, you know, an accidental oversight. One might say foolish. Yeah, certainly foolish. But, I mean, you just read all the way uh, through it. There are other parts of... of this um anyway i i can't really really get into that now but it's a it's an interesting thing to to kind of think about because we get to see the end of the story and right. so we think god we're so smart like we <laughs> right. would have known that but i think that brings up a discussion about well go ahead browning yeah this will tie i think it'll tie in so i've got revelation five you know and remember john got caught up and he's seeing all these things and um you know john was just as excited to to see the conquering king and the Messiah and all as anybody else. And so when they're looking at um, someone to open the, the scroll and, you know, everybody's looking around, there's nobody. And then finally it's like, oh, no, there is someone that's, that's worthy. And um, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I'm sure that, I'm sure John was like, what? Yeah. Let's check it out. Check it out. Who is this guy? Where's this guy? And he looks around and, and it says, it, it says uh, right here, it says, and between the throne, and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing yeah. as though it had been slain. Yeah, that's- so the Lion of Judah mm-hmm. was the slain lamb. You know, again, he expected one thing, and he got something else, um, but no less powerful. No, I, that, that's a very good verse, and it's, it's, it is very, it, it does speak to, our, like, what narrative do we play out in our head? Because you can read that and go, oh, sweet, and you're thinking lion, because it's very, the Lion of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. And then I saw, oh, man. wait, what? Like, yeah, so I, I could see how a lot of people would miss that because you're, you're, you're ready. You're ready for this guy to come with swords and fire and just kill some people because the Romans suck. When it's, it's you're thinking that's going to happen because that's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think, and I don't know if, I can't remember, Caleb, if you and I have talked about this before, but there's a book called Ordinary Men and this is a book that's been on my book list for forever and I haven't gotten to it. Um, but is this I, the Metaxas book. Uh, no, oh, that's uh, seven ordinary men. Oh, yeah, just, I was is that right? Metaxas. Yeah. So ordinary men is by, this is on our, I don't know. It's not on our book list, but this is 
Here we go. Internet. Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland by Christopher R. Browning. And so um, basically it, this details a police force in Poland. So these were Poles. These weren't Germans. But how they went from being a normal police force, you know, battalion, normal battalion, battalion 101, and they evolved all the way to being part of the Nazi death squads, where they were marching women into the woods, stripping them naked, and shooting them and throwing them into shallow graves. And people in modernity will read this book and think to themselves, how could they? They will clutch their pearls and they will just pat themselves on their self-righteous backs and be like, I would never. But Jordan Peterson did this for me. Jordan Peterson has crushed any possibility that if I were living in Poland at that time and been part of Battalion 101, to think that I would have been the one guy saying we shouldn't do this. I am just as capable of that evil as those men. Um... And you can go to any time, like if I were in the ruling party during the Soviet era, like would I have marched people to the gulag during the transatlantic slave trade? Would I have been one of the people that was, you know, trading in bodies? You know, I I come from Choctaw Indian roots. Would I have been the Indian, you know, asking for other Indians to smoke the peace pipe with them? Or would I have been taking scalps and taking women and taking slaves? Like, I'm not so naive to think that I would have been the righteous man during that. Now, again, we're not going to go into another discussion about election, but it's like, well, no, no, you would have been the the same person then, and God would have chose you, and you would have been set apart, and maybe you would have acted in a different way. But just generically, I think it's better for us in modernity as Christians to look back on these Jewish people almost with pity and be like, what a pity they missed it. But I probably would have missed it too because Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have wanted it to be true because my formulation for truth didn't have that in it. And so I just wanted to kind of thrust that into the discussion that guys, just because you're not currently marching people to their deaths during the Nazi regime in the early 20th century doesn't mean that you wouldn't have been had you been there during that time. Yeah, we have the luxury of looking at history through a modern lens and the morality that we know today is not the same. And so, I, yeah, I think that that's a dangerous thing to to go into and, and think that, oh, I wouldn't have been like that. I wouldn't have done that. Or I would, have, I would have stood up. And that's really easy to say. But look at how you are. I think, I think abortion is, is, our, is our modern day equivalent of slavery. And I think the history will look back at our society with disdain on how we treated abortion. And I think hundreds of years from now, people will go, God, those people killed all those kids. Why? Why did no one do more? Why didn't these people do more? And I think they'll look at pastors, like we look at Jonathan Edwards, who owned slaves, and or or uh, Thomas Jefferson. Like the guy literally wrote a document that would be used to end slavery, right. but he also owned slaves. And I all I all, I think all of that just points back to God will use crooked pencils to, 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 to write his straight lines. And yeah, we, I don't think, I don't think we should fall into that trap of, I mean, if I was back there, I'd have done it this way. Cause well, probably not the case. And I don't want to get off too political here as we, as we wrap, but it's not crazy to think that within a few generations, we will be gaslit about who was pro the sacrifice of babies via abortion. Mm-hmm. Because 
you know, you'll see these man on the street interviews where people will talk about the KKK. The KKK was founded by the Democratic Party. Those were Democrats that were part of the KKK. Like they think, oh, white Southerners they had to admit Republicans. It's like, no, no, it, that certainly wasn't the case. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, had to have been a Democrat. No, he was a Republican. Now, we can't be so naive as to think that the modern Republican you know, party platform was the same as it was during Abraham Lincoln's time. But, but again, that's one thing that if, if posterity, if people are listening to this in posterity, hopefully it's not prophetic, but it very likely will be that they will be gaslit into thinking that, oh, no, 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 we, we weren't pro-abortion, we were pro-this, or it was actually the other side. Because when you're that far removed from the people that are actually living and breathing that philosophy, it's easy to gaslight them and say, that's not what we said, or surely that's not what they meant. And, you know, we live in this time you know, I think Caleb, you either brought it up this week or last week, where we're in the, kind of in this postmodern moment where truth is my truth and truth is relative and all these different things. And, you know, when, when you can assume you can explain what somebody else was thinking generations ago of whom you have no connection, I'm going to default to believing what somebody says. So when someone says, no, I don't, I, I know that this is a living human being inside of me. I just want to kill it. Take them at their word. Like they're not a poor you know, poor woman that just needs a leg up. And this is just something the government can help her with uh, so that she can get back on her feet. This is an evil woman that knows what she's doing, or this is an evil man that knows what he's doing as he's driving her there and holding her hand as she's going through the process. And so again, didn't want to jump off too much on a tangent there, but no, I think, I think we're given a choice because I think not everybody fell into that trap of being, being, being an, even a Nazi sympathizer. Like we're given a choice. Would, would, would we be by be like Bonhoeffer? Bonhoeffer was so devoted to the scripture and understanding and knowing what God's truth was, he called Hitler for what he was way before anybody else got on board. And if you have not read anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's one of the most incredible men uh, of modern history who stood on truth, who stood on God's word and said, no, this isn't right. He implored other ministers and pastors in Germany to speak out against Hitler and he was chastised. He was he lost his ministry. He he was he he I think he died at thirty three as well, which is interesting. I don't read too much into that, but he he died very young. Um, but he was so committed to the truth that he was involved in a plot to try to kill Hitler. And that guy was not he was not a big burly jujitsu gun wielding no yeah. Dude, but he was a thug well, nonetheless. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's an arrogance that makes us think that, mm-hmm. right? That like, oh, if I was in that time, I would do this differently, and it would be more, more holy and in line with the Lord's teaching and all those things. But it's also an incorrect view of ourselves and of the Lord, right? Is that it's like, no, we know from Scripture that anything good that comes from us is is because of Him, and we know that even my best efforts are filthy rags, mm. right? So how could we say, if we have a right view of the Lord and of ourselves, how could we say back then that, well, I would make the right choice? You know, yeah. it's, it's whatever God would do with us. But it's also, yeah. it's like it's also an invitation to take some internal um, uh, inventory. Like, what am I doing? Like, how do I view this? Question some things. Like, it's an invitation to, to speak out against the culture, the culture too as well. And I think it would do pastors well to heed that warning of because people, especially on the left, they love to throw around the, well, you're just on the wrong side of history. That's what I was gonna say. It's like, am I, am I on the wrong side of history? 
you think what's growing inside the belly of a woman is meaningless and worthless and you can't defend the reason why and you cloak it with all these euphemisms that make you feel good, right? So, but pastors have bought into the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice all the time under all circumstances. And they think that that leads them to being quiet on issues that no one should be quiet on because everyone's so scared. Modern pastors are so scared to be called, being called a Christian nationalist, or they're trying to set up a theocracy or something like that. But as we talked about, and we're not going to you know open this up too far, but a theocracy is a bad thing. A theonomy is a good thing. A theocracy is where the state picks a religion and forces it down the throats of the people against their will. Whereas a theonomy is where the state operates as a republic that allows a ancient, you know, religious text, you know, a la the Bible to, you know, force them in a moral direction as they're making all of their standards and, you know, foundations for the society that they're building. And so for these modern pastors to just say, oh, you know, we're just going to be about the gospel. We're not going to get into all these social issues. What you're saying is, I think only atheists should be running the government. I think only atheists should be teachers. I think only atheists should be working and running companies. So when you say that, be prepared for the consequences of a world that is bending the knee to Satan, which is the the ultimate expression through atheism. Yeah. And every single law that we have, you you can't say that any law is not morally based all of them are every single one of them are morally based so it's just some people's morals are as i forget who said it it's like having your feet planted firmly in midair they can't tell you why you should believe this they're just going to tell you that you're gonna you're gonna believe this why because i said so and i'm elite i went to harvard i went to brown i went to yale it's that type of an attitude you know who thought he was on the right side of history caiaphas Caiaphas thought he was on the right side of history, and he killed Jesus. He killed our cl- our King of Glory. I was looking for—I don't know why I can't find it. I think it's—it's it's not First Corinthians, is it? Colossians, Colossians two fifteen. What is it? What's if the, they uh, had, if they had known these things, they would not have killed our King of Glory. I think it's—I think it's Colossians two fifteen. But, and I and I'm I'm, I'm referencing a book. Um, Eugenia Constantina that I'm reading right now, which is great. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Or sorry, sorry, sorry. First Corinthians two eight. Two eight. Um, okay. English Standard Version. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. Sorry, Joby. Sorry, um, Joby. Uh, but they didn't want to understand. They didn't. They didn't know, and they didn't want to know. And to your point earlier, like they didn't want to see it. They wanted to see what they wanted to see. And had they had they actually like seen that. They wouldn't have been part of that. And Nicodemus comes to mind. He was part of that class. He decided, he decided to seek Jesus out and question him. And Jesus said, you've got to be born again. And, and that was totally contrary to what he should have done culturally in his position. And, but yeah, they, they, they were on the wrong side of history, it turns out. If you guys haven't read. They were on the wrong side. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the end here, but spoiler alert, like I think <laughs> Jesus comes back, which by the way, have y'all seen that TikTok video of a guy that is in a Bible study and he's reading, he's reading the gospels as if he's in a book club and they haven't gotten to the end yet. And so he's literally, have y'all not seen this? No. Dude, I got to find it, but, I, and I'm probably sure going to butcher it. But it's this guy that just goes, man, you know, this, these characters, this Jesus, there's, there's something special about this guy. I can tell, I can tell they're kind of setting this up, but man, isn't Judas like the coolest guy? Like, I feel like Judas is going to be that he's that he's ride or die, isn't he? Isn't he? And like everyone else in the Bible study is looking at him like, wait a minute, have you not read the end? And he goes, no, wait a minute. Cause then they just say like, you know, Jesus dies. Right. And he's like, 
what? <laughs> <laughs> what? He dies? No. But then someone else is like, but you know he comes back and he's like, he resurrected? Are you kidding me? And oh, like, that's amazing. But just imagine, you're like you're ruining, imagine ruining the ending of Breaking Bad for somebody that's, you know, in the middle of season two or something like that. Like, I'll have to 20 find years that. later. Yeah, I'll have to find that for you guys. Anything else on Matthew 2 before we wrap up? Check, check, check. All right, guys, well, we'll have to leave it there, but come back next Sunday where we will dig into Matthew 3. Make sure you guys read through that. I just got to tell you, I'm so pumped that we're in Matthew. There's there's so much good stuff here. It leads to so much good discussion and just being able to, we know the gospel story. We just made a joke about it, but how much have we learned just in two hours of going over the first two chapters? And so we got good. a lot more to go. But guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. The only link we've got for you today is a link to our donation page. The reason we have things like the forging table, the podcast, and everything else we have coming down the pike is because we have guys that have financially committed to us to be able to create the content to allow for the pushing back of darkness darkness. So guys, hop on board and be a part of the team. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Per Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>